Good morning. Good morning to those who may be joining us online right now. We want to welcome you and thank you for being here with us again if you if you joined us late. Um, but I can't think of a better thing for us to do today than, than exactly what we're doing right now. Like This is a time when we get to come together as people who love God and show our love to Him with the way that we pay attention, the way that we get into His Word, the way that we pray, the, the condition of our heart. And this is a great opportunity for us to just give Him everything we have. So are we ready to do that this morning, church? Are we ready to give Him everything we have? All right. Um, so we, we are currently, as you know, in the midst of a, a year-long, like 50-week series that we're doing called Read Scripture in 2021. And so hopefully we're doing like 15 minutes of reading each and every day, roughly, trying to really establish that discipline and grow in our understanding of God's Word. And so, of course, we're, we're right now in the midst of our second week in the book of Job, and each week's message is taken from the, the reading that we've been doing those previous days and, and this previous week. And so that's where we are this morning. But Job is this book that, that famously confronts the reader with the relationship between the God of the Bible and all the suffering and evil and pain and injustice that we see in the world today. Raise your hand if you've ever seen all those things in the world. We see it every day, don't we? It's, it's everywhere. So, with that said, we're going, to get, we're going to jump right into it this morning. I encourage you to have a Bible in hand if you have one. That might be on your phone. Uh, if you have a hard copy, great. If you don't and would like one, back there behind Ricardo on the bookshelf is uh, you know, countless Bibles. You're welcome to grab one of those and dig into it. So I, I definitely encourage you to do that because I think you're going to appreciate what's here just a little bit more. So all that being said, let's go to God in a word of prayer. And as I often do, I invite you to, to think about your posture before the Lord this morning. So I invite you to stand or to kneel or to raise hands, but let's, let's consider how we go to him and make sure that it reflects where our heart is this morning as well. Let's pray. Father in, in heaven, uh, what a privilege it is to be able to talk to you. We recognize, Father, that you have, have this greatness about you that is, that is awesome, and yet it is, is wondrous in a way that we can't, we can't even begin to fathom or grasp. And so this morning, as we, we come to you in prayer and, and we get into your word and we study and we try to understand it, Father, I just want to ask that you would, you would look at our heart, that you would see what's, what's really there, that you look inside our minds and those, those thoughts that we have about you know, what we're going to do for lunch afterward and like who we're going to call and who we miss and the laundry that we have to do later. Father, would you, would you help us to just kind of seize those thoughts and hold them hostage for the next few minutes that we could just fully embrace and, and enjoy, delight in your word? That's my prayer this morning, that we delight in, in the, the preciousness of your word. And so, Father, the, the message that, that I speak today, Lord, I, I don't want it to be mine. I want it to be yours, that your Holy Spirit inspired it, that you speak through me, and that you speak into the ears of every person who's here. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear. And, Father, would you, would you move in this place this morning? If there's a heart that, that needs to be softened, uh, would you soften it? If there's something new that needs to be learned, would you help us to learn? This is my prayer, and I pray all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. So I, I think in, in order to appreciate more fully where we are going today, I, I think it'll be really, really helpful and probably necessary for us to go back and recap a little bit of what we covered and talked about last week uh, as we started the book of Job. 
And I think one of the most important questions for us to ask and to consider here is how Job should be read. How Job should be read. Should we read the text simply as this historical narrative where it's just this basic accounting of what happened to a particular guy in a particular place in a particular time? Or is it helpful for us to think of Job differently? And what I argued last week is that Job should be read, in my opinion, more as allegory than as a historical narrative. That its content and its structure and its complexity of poetry, I think, lend itself to being a story that is written for a particular purpose, to teach a particular principle, to help us understand God a little bit more. That it's written almost as like a Shakespearean play might be written with multiple acts and several scenes, each within those acts. And so last week would have been Act 1. Uh, of this drama that, that begins in kind of the celestial throne room of God as this, this Satan, this accuser, this opposer approaches God and God asks him if he's considered his servant Job, a man of, of impeccable integrity, a man of, of incredible character, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And so twice God asks this accuser some version of, of this question, um, and twice the accuser responds and says that, that it's only because God is, is good to Job that Job is so faithful. That if God would just reach out his hand, his, his mighty hand, and strike Job, that Job would curse him to his face. And so twice God grants permission to this accuser to go and strike Job. The first time, all of Job's wealth and family are taken away. The second time, all of Job's personal health is taken away. He's covered in sores from, from head to toe. And he becomes this man who's lost everything and is now in the state of, of physical pain and physical agony. And so as the opening scenes close and the, and the curtains close, open back up again for a new scene, Job is sitting here and he's with his, his three closest friends in what is probably the, the longest conversation in all of Scripture. And so here while Job sits in his sorrow... Each friend begins to systematically explain to Job why he's enduring all that he's enduring. And they basically say, or begin to say, some version of the same thing over and over and over again. That Job, we know something about God. We, we know that God is perfectly just. Do we have slides up? Okay. Yeah. We, we know that God is perfectly just. And we know that God operates according to this rule set, this principle, this algorithm that says that you get what you deserve. And therefore, Job, you're, you're getting a whole lot of stuff right now. And so it's clear to us, Job, that you're in sin. That's why you're going through all this. You're in sin, and if you repent, all this goes away. And each time Job listens to them, and he comes immediately and aggressively to his own defense, and he says some version of the same thing back to them. He says, you know, I know that I am innocent, and I also know that God kind of operates according to this principle or this algorithm or this, this operating system that says that you get what you deserve. And so it's pretty clear to me what's going on here, guys. The problem is not me. The problem is God. That God is not being just. And so round and round this conversation goes for something like 25 chapters before we come to the final scene from the first act of Job, which is presented as something of, of an interlude or a piece of commentary from the narrator of the book. Because suddenly... This unidentified voice enters the story. They inject their, their own incredibly profound perspective into the story. And, and they begin to appeal to, of all things, mining, 
like digging into the dirt to find stuff as a way to, to think about Job's circumstances and their predicament. And so they explain that humanity is unique. Humanity is set apart from all other creatures on earth and that humanity can dig and dig and dig into the deepest recesses of the earth to discover things like precious metals and precious stones, things that, that even the proudest animals and smartest animals on earth couldn't begin to, to stop and consider. But yet man will, will tunnel through rocks to, to, to endless depths in order to find them. And yet despite man's talent, stopping almost at nothing to discover all of these hidden things, the one thing that escapes him is wisdom. Because wisdom cannot be found in the land of the living. Wisdom is only found with God. Only he knows the way to it. And so as the interlude draws to a close, the narrator tells the reader uh, exactly where to find wisdom, exactly where to find understanding. But it has nothing at all to do with digging. It has nothing at all to do with thinking really, really hard about it. It has nothing at all to do with being well-read. He says, the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to shun evil is understanding. And it sounds poetic. It sounds beautiful, but, but also a bit mysterious, a bit intimidating. Like, does God really want humanity to, to be afraid of him, to be terrified of his presence? Or... Or is something else entirely meant by this comment? And so where we left off last week was, was with this discussion of that point. What does it mean to fear the Lord? What does that mean when God says that? And, and I equated it to the relationship between a parent and a child. That in a parent's discipline of their child, correcting wrongdoing, there may be times when a child might be scared or might be intimidated or might even fear facing their parents or facing the consequences for their actions. And yet, these, these passing moments of pain, raise your hand if you've ever felt the pain of being parented. Anybody? Am I alone? Okay, I got some. I'm not alone. Good, good. Um, we, we've all faced those moments of pain, yet those passing moments do not encapsulate the fullness of the loving relationship that we have with them, right? It's a momentary thing, but, but the overarching principle there is love. And what you realize is that pain and consequences is, is just a tool. It's a tool that parents might use in the ultimate story of their love for their child. And so what, Job, what, what Act 1 of Job encourages us to understand, I think, is this. That, that living with wisdom is about trusting God to see the things that I cannot see. In the same way that a parent sees a hot stove or sees a hot iron and understands something that their, their toddler doesn't understand, trusting God is about living with wisdom to, to trust him to see what, what I cannot. And so living with real wi wisdom is about recognizing that some things, like pain, like suffering, are just more complex than we could ever possibly realize. And, and they, don't have to, they don't have common sense explanations, but that they require real wisdom to discern. And real wisdom is not discoverable in the ways that, that diamonds and gold and rubies and gems are discoverable. Real wisdom is only in the Lord. And so try, as you, as you might, to, to kind of, well, I should say this, as we, we dig in right now, try to keep all of those facets of this conversation kind of within grasp in your memory banks. I know it's a lot of information, but let's look to Act 2, or the rest of the story, 
of the book of Job and see what else we learn, keeping, what, keeping in mind what we just talked about. So Act 2 of the book of Job begins with an incredibly relatable speech. We, we don't need the slide up just yet. We're not quite there. Um, but it's an incredibly re- relatable speech by Job himself. Um, that any, and while he may be with his friends that we, we've talked about at the previous point, it, it's not explicitly clear. In fact, it kind of seems that he's alone, that he's in this place that many of us find ourselves in. How many of you have ever been there? You've had this, this moment of intense conflict with somebody. You've had the back-and-forth conversation, and, and now you have like days and weeks to think about and replay that conversation over and over and over again. Like, oh, I said this thing, and they said that thing, and oh, if I wish I had said that a little bit different, it might have, it might have gone differently. You ever replay those conversations in your... Okay, I'm, I'm not alone in that either. Good. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Um, so Job 29 is kind of the beginning of Job's introspection, where he, he starts to look within. And he begins to reflect on his own life and, and how God used to really watch over him, and how he used to really feel like, like God had this intimate friendship with him. And he remembers how he used to walk around town, and people used to respect him. They, they used to cherish what he had to say, that, that he felt important, and, and that he really used to be somebody. It's a feeling I would imagine a lot of people feel, especially as they age or as they get older, and, and they get closer to the end of their lives, where they, they can't help but kind of look back and remember and reminisce about how much things have changed in terms of of the influence and and the value that you feel you have in your given community, or maybe what it's like to to have been a former celebrity, right? To remember what it was like to to be somebody, a VIP when you walked in the room, and now nobody recognizes you. Think of how strange that would feel. And so Job reflects on all of that, and now he looks around, and what he sees are are all these young people who are just staring at him and, and mocking him. They just mock and he says he, he cries out to God, but he, but he gets no answer. That God just merely looks at him, and, and it seems like he just turns on him ruthlessly and attacks. And you can tell that Job is struggling to make sense of it, and yet he just, he just can't. He can't quite wrap his mind around what's going on. Have you ever tried really, really hard to understand something, and no matter how hard you tried, you just couldn't quite grasp it? You ever been there before? I kind of went through that a bit in college. I think I've talked about this before, where all my life, math had come easy to me. Science had come easy to me. And then I get into college, and I go and I take calculus, and I take physics. And, and for the first time in my life, this, this thing that had been easy to me for so long, just, I just couldn't get it to make sense any longer. And so I tried, and I tried. I've never worked so hard for a C in my life. I just couldn't get this, this concept, all these numbers and symbols in front of me, to make sense in the way that all the other numbers and symbols had made sense it took everything with me to get that C. And so Job is thinking and he's reflecting and he's studying his life, looking back, and he can't make sense of any of it. And so in chapter 31, this is beginning of verse 5, he begins to reflect on where his heart has been. He says, you know, if, if I have walked with falsehood or my foot has hurried after deceit, then let God weigh me in honest scales and he will know that I am blameless. If my steps have turned from the path, if my heart has been led by my eyes, or if my hands have been defiled, then may, may others eat what I have sown, and may my, my crops be uprooted. If my heart has been enticed by a woman, or if I have lurked at my neighbor's door, then may my wife grind another man's grain, or may other men sleep with her. 
For that would have been wicked. That would have been a sin to be judged. And he continues on like this for the whole chapter. If you read the whole chapter, 17 times he says the word if. He says, if, then, if, then, if, then. If I have done this, then God, give me the proper punishment. And you get to see him just kind of openly wrestle with that algorithm that we spoke about last week. Like he's saying like, God, isn't, isn't this how you work? Isn't this what you do? Don't, don't you bless righteousness and, and, and curse wrongdoing? Like, I look back, God, and, and all I see is I've been righteous. So why do I feel so cursed right now? I can't make sense of, of your operating system. I can't make sense of how you're doing things. I've searched every facet of my life, and I come up empty. I just, I don't get it. And when Job finally runs out of words, when he finally has nothing left to say, somebody new shows up. And it's a, a man by the name of Elihu. And i got to tell you, making sense of Elihu is probably the most challenging part of the book of Job for me. I mean, I, I really read and wrestled and, and worked with Elihu's comments this week. Because, and I'm not alone. Because if you read like 50 commentaries, you will find dozens of different opinions about how to make sense of Elihu and, and, and what he is. Because it's, it's so strange that out of nowhere, this, this new character just shows up. He was never there before, but, but here he is. And so some people read it and they think, well, he's just a fourth friend of Job's. He's just one more person who's there that we haven't heard of yet. And other people read it and they think, oh, well, this, this shouldn't even be here. Like Elihu, like that must have been added later. That wasn't even part of the original text. And other people read it and say, well, um, maybe Elihu is actually the author of Job and this is his perspective as the author. And still others say, well, no, it, Elihu's more of an adjudicator, like a judge, like a, a neutral, third-party, objective person who's been listening to both sides of the argument, and now he's here to kind of weigh in on, on the neutral, objective side. There's lots of opinions, and, and I recognize we're not going to be able to settle all those this morning for the sake of time. But Elihu is why I think it's so critical to figure out what kind of text Job really is, what kind of literature Job is, because Think about this. If, if Job is a historical narrative, just a, a true story about a certain guy in a certain place in a certain time, then, then you're going to read Elihu's words. And when he says stuff like, hey, pay attention to everything I say, or my words come from an upright heart, or even, even worse, be assured that my words are not false and one perfect in knowledge is with you. If this is a historical account and you read Elihu saying that, what are you going to conclude about Elihu? You're going to probably think to yourself, or at least this is what I would think, like, who is this guy? And who on earth does he think he is? Like, he's more arrogant than all of them. And when he rants and he raves for six whole chapters, you're going to be so confused about whether he brings any value to the story at all. Like, why did this guy show up and just stick his foot in his mouth? Why, why is he doing that? But when you read Job as allegory, as a story that has a meaning, a purpose, a principle that, that God is trying to, to convey to, human, to humanity, suddenly everything about Elihu is, is free to change. Because we aren't trying to fit Elihu into some box of our own creation. Now Elihu is free to play any role in the story, even one that, that might be kind of superhuman in nature. Like, when we watch Batman, we don't really watch Batman and think to ourselves, like, this is all bogus. 
Like, this would never really happen. Nobody would truly jump off a building with a cape. Like, that's, that's silly. We don't watch Batman that way, do we? No, what do we do when we watch Batman? We suspend disbelief for the sake of the story. That Batman is supposed to be larger than life, but his persona is what moves the story forward. Well, Elihu, I think, moves the story of Job forward. And he invites us to suspend some disbelief. And so when he refers to himself as perfect in knowledge, I don't think you're, you're supposed to read Job and then second guess what Elihu is saying. I think you're supposed to read Job and trust what Elihu says because Elihu moves the story forward toward the ultimate point of it all. And he sets the stage for God to come in at the very end and drop the proverbial mic. That is Elihu's purpose in the story. And so out of nowhere... This guy named Elihu shows up in Job 32, and the very first thing we learn about him is he's angry. He's angry. He, he's angry with Job. He's angry with Job's friends, which is the first clue that he's not one of them. He's not one of the friends. We find out he's angry at Job because Job is going around justifying himself rather than justifying God. Elihu's angry at Job's friends because they keep accusing him and condemning him but they couldn't refute him. In other words, in their eyes, he's guilty until proven innocent. He's going, you guys haven't proved anything. When Job's defending himself, you're not, you're not showing him how he's wrong. You just condemn him. And so like a judge or an arbiter or an independent third-party objective person, Elihu's been listening. And he's been listening and listening and listening some more, mostly out of respect for, for all those who are older than him. But he's done listening. And he, he's like so ready to enter this conversation right now that he's just like about to burst. You ever been there where you're like in a conversation like, oh, I, I need to say something so bad right now, but like it would be rude. So I got to wait. That's Elihu. And so finally, when he does speak up, he directs his gaze to Job and he says, you know, Job, I've been, I've been here this whole time and you've said in my hearing, we should have a, a text up here, Liam, if we could. You've said in my hearing, I, I heard these words come out of your mouth, Job. I am pure. I have done no wrong. I am clean and free from sin. And yet God has found fault with me. He considers me his enemy. He fastens my feet in shackles. He, he keeps close watch on all my paths. I heard you say those words, Job. But Elihu says, but I tell you, Job, in this you are not right. For God is greater than any mortal. I like the 1984 version. It says God is greater than any man. In other words, Elihu is saying, Job... You, you keep looking at all your suffering, and, and your greatest concern seems to be about defending yourself, defending yourself, defending yourself. You keep assuming that your suffering is supposed to be because of wrongdoing, and you look at your life, and you have no wrongdoing. He says, but you're assuming something wrong about God, that he's, he's just like this computer algorithm of, of inputs and outputs, like if sin, then curse. If else, then bless. Like, you think God just works this way, like he's just some computer. But he says, I tell you in this, you're not right. For God is greater than man. There's more to the story than you can wrap your little mind around, Job. And so he continues by basically saying, you know, you, you keep accusing God of not hearing you, of not responding to you, of not caring, of not speaking. He's like, I've sat here for days. You've gone on and on and on like this for days, claiming that, that all you're getting from God is silence. But, look at verse 14. 
chapter 33. Elihu says, For God does speak, now one way, now another, though no one perceives it. And so Elihu is going to show at least two ways that God speaks to humanity, even speaks to Job. He says, first are dreams. He says, in a dream, in a a vision of the night, when, when deep sleep falls on people as they slumber in their beds, he may speak in their ears and and terrify them with warnings. Why? To turn them from wrongdoing and keep them from pride, to preserve them from the pit, their, their lives from perishing by the sword. And he says the second way that God speaks is through pain. He says, or in verse 19, someone may be chastened on a bed of pain with constant distress in their bones so that their body finds food repulsive and their soul loathes the choicest meal. Their flesh wastes away to nothing and their bones, once hidden, now stick out. And they draw near to the pit and their life to the messengers of death. And so he continues in verse 29. He says, God does all these things to a person twice, even three times to turn them back from the pit, that the light of life may shine on them. And so Elihu wants to set the record straight. God is not silent just because you you aren't perceiving what he says. God does speak. But the ways that God speaks doesn't necessarily come through audible words that you can hear and perceive. He might speak through dreams. He might speak through visions. He might speak to you through pain and suffering. He might speak to you in other ways. But he does all of these things out of the love that he has to save a person's life. And so Elihu looks at Job. And he says, you know, your your problem, Job, it may not be sin. I mean, it may not be like the sin of lust or the sin of greed or the, the sin of arrogance or pride. I should say, take that back, the sin of materialism or whatever. But he says, Job, you are acting as a man who is full of pride and arrogance. He says, that is your sin. And in your pride and in your arrogance, you actually have the audacity to accuse God of being unjust. You're saying that he's perverting justice, that he hates justice. That's what he said when he he started his whole speech back in Job 32, that, that Job was more interested in justifying himself than he was in justifying God. So he was quick to accuse God, but to justify Job, to, ju- to justify myself. And, and I find that to be perhaps the, the most subtle and, and powerful point in this entire book. Because how many of us, when we look around and we, we see evil, and we see suffering, and we see injustice in our world, or when we look at the wrongdoing of other people around us, how many of us are so quick to justify and claim innocence for ourselves. Have you ever done that? The problem is them. I'm, I'm innocent. We ask, how can a good God allow good people to suffer? And I always find myself asking, like, how do you know they're good? How do you know they're good? Just because I like someone, or have an affinity for someone, or, or generally perceive nice qualities about someone, I generally perceive nice qualities for all of you, does that mean that they're good as God sees goodness? And so that's why Jesus says in Mark 10, 18, hey, there is no one good but who? Say that again for me. But God alone. And so when we ask questions like that, we make ourselves both the judge and the jury. We we acquit humanity while we direct our, our judgmental gaze 
to the Father in heaven. And so like Job, we, we are far more interested in justifying ourselves and acquitting ourselves all so that we can accuse and condemn who? God. And so in Job 36, Elihu basically says, hey, Job, if you're not going to stick up for God and his justice, I will. He says in in 36.3, I will ascribe justice to my maker. He continues in verse 22. he He says, God is exalted in his power. Who is a teacher like him? Who has prescribed his ways for him or said to him, you have done wrong? Remember to extol his work, which people have praised in song. All humanity has seen it. Mortals gaze on it from afar. How great is God beyond our understanding. And what Elihu is getting ready to do in the story is is exit stage left. But before he goes, he begins to set the stage for, for God's kind of grand entrance into the story. Like Job's been waiting for God to speak. We, the reader of Job, have been waiting for God to speak. And now finally God prepares to make his appearance. And so before he does, Elihu primes us. He gets us ready for that part of the conversation. He says, listen to this, Job. Stop and consider God's wonders. Verse 23, he says, the the Almighty is beyond our reach and exalted in power. In his justice and great righteousness, he does not oppress. And so therefore, people revere him, for does he not have the regard? Does he not have regard for all the wise in heart? In other words, Job, do you want to know the way of wisdom? He says, all you got to do is just stop and consider the magnitude of who God is. And as Elihu, Elihu turns and walks off stage, and as God makes his grand appearance, the voice of God begins to speak from out of the storm. And, and God says, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. In other words, you know, you've been questioning me this whole time, Job. You've been questioning me, why is God doing this? How, how, how could God be just? He says, it's my turn. It's my turn now. I'm going to question you. So he says, Job, this is chapter 38, verse 4. Where were you? Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me. Tell me if you understand. And he goes on. He says, do you understand how the oceans and waves work, Job? Do you understand how death works? Do you understand how darkness and light work? Do you understand how snow and hail and thunderstorms work? Are you the one who places the stars and the constellations in the sky? Can you control lightning, Job? Do you know anything about the goats or the donkeys or the bears? How about the wild ox or the ostrich? Does the hawk or eagle take flight because of your wisdom and understanding, Job? Tell me. And so finally God says, will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. You've been accusing me. Answer me. So you've been reading Job with me these last two weeks. We've all been going through this together. This is Job's moment. This is what he wanted. How many times did he say to his friends, if only I could stand before God and and make my case, then I I, I would win. I I would be innocent. He wanted God's ear. He wanted to plead his case for innocence. He wanted to correct an unjust God. So God says, hey, okay, Job, you think you know how I work. You think you know how I bless and how I curse. Do you even understand how anything works? Like, who are you, Job? Answer me. 
Tell me what you think you know. And so here's his opportunity. And Job opens his mouth, and what does he say? He says, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? He says, I, I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice. But I will say no more. You can almost picture God like, oh, look who's speechless now, Job. The guy who ranted and raved for 30 chapters. Now you have nothing to say? Fine, I'll keep talking. He says in, in chapter 40, verse 8, he says, would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's? Can your voice thunder like his? He says, if so, then adorn yourself with glory and splendor. Clothe yourself in honor and majesty. Unleash the fury of your wrath. Look at all who are proud and bring them low, Job. Look at all who are proud and humble them. Crush the wicked where they stand. Bury them in all the, all in the dust together and shroud their faces in the grave. And then if you can do that, I myself will admit to you that your own right hand can save you. Go ahead, Job. And so as God continues, he's, he's already given Job this tour of, of all these aspects of creation, but now he focuses on two particular creatures, behemoth and leviathan. And this is a favorite for a lot of people who like to get off topic on stuff, because oftentimes we, we look at this text and we read more into it than I think it's meant to, to mean. And so people start wondering, what is God describing? Is he, is he describing the dinosaurs or crocodiles or hippos or rhinoceros or all sorts of related questions? Frankly, if you read uh, Job 41 and you try to see what he says about Leviathan, uh, if that sounds like any creature I've ever seen, uh, it sounds more like Godzilla than it sounds like any creature that's ever walked the face of the earth. Because here's this, this scaly, giant, beastly figure that can be in the water, and, and he, his breath sets coals ablaze, and smoke pours forth out of his nostrils. Like, this is no creature that I've ever seen on the face of the earth, only in movies. And so describing and decoding what these creatures are, that, that's, I don't think that's really God's point here. The creatures could basically be anything that is large, anything that is powerful. And so when God says, okay, Job, consider behemoth, consider Leviathan, what I read, and this is just my interpretation, is, Job, I want you to consider the, the largest and most powerful creatures that have ever graced or, or existed on the surface of the earth or the depths of the sea. And whether that's Tyrannosaurus rex or Brontosaurus or Rhinoceros or Tiger or Nessie or you know, Megalodon, like that, that matters very, very little. But God's point remains the same. He says, Job, consider who you are. Can you capture that beast by the eyes or trap and pierce his nose? Can you pull him in with a fish hook or tie down his tongue with a rope? In other words, Job, can you physically contend with the, the mightiest creatures that ever walked the face of the earth? And the answer is, no. So he says, so Job, do you realize that I made both you and behemoth? I made both you and Leviathan. He says, I promise you, Job, if you try to lay a hand on that creature, you will remember that struggle and you will never do it again. That any hope of subduing it is false. Do we have the, are we able to put the slides up? <clears throat> he says the, the mere sight of it over, is overpowering. No one is fierce enough to rouse it. 
And so who then is able to stand against me? Who has a claim against me that I must pay? He says, Job, everything under heaven belongs to me. Everything. And so he's like, Job, who do you think you are? Consider all the wonders. Consider all my hands have made. Who do you really think you are? And so once again, God goes quiet. And he invites Job to speak. And once again, Job has every opportunity under the sun to plead his case, to demand his innocence. And yet when God's done, what does Job say? What can he muster? Job just says, I know. I know, God, that you can do all things. That no purpose of yours can be thwarted. He says, God, you asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? But I realized, surely I spoke of things that I didn't understand. Things that were too wonderful, too amazing, too awesome for me to know. You said, God, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. And Job says, I'll tell you what, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. I've seen you. And so therefore, I despise myself and I repent. I repent in dust and ashes. Church, I, I know we've done a lot of reading just the text this morning. And it, it might be kind of hard to really keep your attention with all that. This is like drinking from a fire hose. I get it. But, but when you read Shakespeare, that's, that's kind of what you do. If you go and you read Hamilton, that's kind of what you do. You read the words of the author, of the playwright, and you consider what they're trying to say. Because by the time you get to Job's final words to God at the end, man, it, it feels like a lifetime ago that God and the accuser were standing in the throne room of God having this conversation. Like, that feels like a long time ago by the time we get to this point. And so much has happened by this point that we're left to try to, to bring all of these loose ends together and make sense of it all and acknowledge that if you're familiar with the story, there are facets of the story that for the sake of time, we just didn't have time to really touch on. I acknowledge that. But I want to try to wrap all of this up as best I can this morning. How do we understand the relationship between God and all of the evil, all the injustice, all the suffering, all the pain that is in our world? Like, what is Job's ultimate point? If I'm right, and this is allegory, then there should be a, a big ultimate point, a meaning, a message below the surface. Like, why would God in this story take a righteous man and allow someone who's so righteous to endure so much heartache? Like, what, what does that teach us about suffering? What does that teach us about the suffering that we might endure? Are you tracking with me? That's a question we have to ask right now. And so before we answer that question this morning, I want to try to, to answer it first by asking you a slightly different question. Raise your hand. How many of you have ever had surgery before? few of us. Um, I actually had my first surgery ever during the pandemic this year. I had a gum graft done. I, I managed to avoid it for, you know, 30-something years, but it finally got up to me, caught up to me this, this last year. But here's the question I want you to consider. What is the difference between surgery and being stabbed? I know it sounds like a crazy question. What is the difference between surgery and being stabbed? 
Because at their core, aren't they both basically kind of the same thing? Do they not both involve like a sharp blade that is piercing and cutting open flesh? It's kind of the same thing. And yet we, we all understand that they're, they're two very, very different things, right? So what is it that sets them apart from one another? The difference is that one intends to help and the other intends to harm. And yet both can cause pain. Would you agree? One is aimed with precision to open up and cut out or fix. One is aimed toward destruction to cut down. Yet both cut. And so as I think about that question, I realize that what makes all the difference between those two things, those two actions, is not the tool. You can stab with a scalpel and you can do surgery with a knife. What makes a difference is intent. Intent. And so if I asked you, you, is it wrong to cut someone? Most likely you'd say, yeah, that sounds like a pretty wrong thing to do. You shouldn't go around cutting people. That's your first instinct, which is exactly what, what, what Job did. He just responded. And yet, I think it would be the wrong instinct. Because the right instinct would be to seek to know the intent. Why were they being cut? Intent matters. It's not just that they're being cut. It's the why. The intent matters. And so the book and the story of Job asks us, it compels us to dig deeper. It reminds us that it's not good enough to simply say, that, hey, there's, there's suffering and there's pain in the world, and then conclude that God must be the villain. It's, it's not enough to do that. Job makes us step back and ask the better question, the question of why. What is the purpose behind the pain? What is the purpose behind the suffering? Is it to harm or is it to help? Is it to cut out or is it to cut down? What is the purpose? And many of us go through life acting like pain is the problem, like, like pain is the enemy. And yet, if you went to a doctor today and they told you that you had something wrong with you, something that was life-threatening, and the only way to deal with it was to open you up and go get it, every single one of us, I think, would probably volunteer for the pain because we understood that it was for our ultimate benefit. It was going to save our lives to go through that. And so what Job's story reveals to us is that it's not the pain that threatens Job. What was it? Elihu told us exactly what Job's problem was, and actually Thomas alluded to it this morning in communion, that it was arrogance and pride. Arrogance and pride. For 30 chapters, Job is overcome with his own arrogance and his own pride as he looks up and he points the finger at God and he accuses God of, of all kinds of wrongdoing and injustice. Meanwhile, what the story reveals to us is that he's blind at the, at the cancer that's actually growing within his heart throughout this entire story. He doesn't see the arrogance and the pride that's growing from within. And so like a skillful surgeon, God brought momentary pain into his life, and he dealt with the deadliest threat of all. It wasn't the sores on his flesh. What was it? It was what was going on right down in here in his heart. That's what God was dealing with in Job. And so church, last week as we wrestled with Act 1, 
And as we talked about in, the, in kind of the, the intro this morning, we said living with wisdom is about trusting God to see what I cannot see. You think about surgery, like that's what we do all the time with doctors and surgeons, right? We, we go and we get CT scans and MRIs and x-rays and all sorts of other tests because we know that the wise thing to do is to trust them to see some things that we cannot see, that we don't always know exactly what's wrong. Sometimes we, we can tell something's wrong, but we don't know exactly what it is, but we trust them to, to do whatever needs to be done to see it and to fix it. And sometimes what need to be, needs to be done causes us some pain. And so as we think about and, and we conclude kind of the second act of Job this morning, as we reflect on all that we've covered these last two weeks, we can look beyond what wisdom means to dig even deeper and ask what it looks like to really trust God, to really trust Him. Like, how do I know that I trust God even when it hurts, even when I might experience momentary pain? And I, want, I think it's helpful to remember it this way. That trusting God is the decision to let Him make the correct or the right incision. Trusting God is the decision to let Him make the correct incision. Not, not the least painful one. The correct one. And here's what I mean. Every single one of us has sin and brokenness in our lives. For some of us, it manifests itself as lust. For others, it's greed. For others, it's laziness or gluttony or idolatry or any number of things. Like the list is almost endless. And so if I have lust in my heart and, and you, whoever you are, have greed in your heart, the incision that God needs to make in each of us is likely going to be very, very different. Wouldn't you agree? And because it's different, sometimes there are going to be varying levels of pain. I might go through something that's far more painful than you have to go through or vice versa. But according to Elihu, God does all these things. This is Job 33. God does all these things to a person twice, even three times, to turn them back from the pit, that the light of life may shine on them. That God will do whatever it takes to help us see and find life. His concern in what he does has almost nothing to do with whether we think he's being fair or whether we think he's being just when he does it. That trusting God sometimes means that I'm not going to understand it. I'm not going to like it. I'm not going to feel good about it. But I believe and I know that he knows what he's doing. I trust him to make the right incision, even if it's painful to me. And so trusting God is the decision to let God make the right incision. Can I just say something? Something I think we'll all agree with. Would you agree that pain sucks? Pain sucks. And yet we've been saying the same phrase forever and ever, your whole life. No pain, no... Say that one more time. No pain, no gain. We, we've no, we know that pain can be profitable in, in all other facets of our life. And so why is it that when God introduces pain to us, we instead point the finger at him and accuse? Trusting God is the decision to let him make the right incision, not the least painful one. And so church, as we close, I would be remiss not to point out the end of Job's story. Go ahead and jump back into the text if you have your Bible open, and we'll, we'll finish here. Because if you know the story of Job, God doesn't just leave him there in pain and suffering, does he? What does he do? 
God gives everything back to Job twice over. And so many of us read this narrative and we think like, man, that, that, that's nice and all, but I don't want four new kids. I kind of like the two that I had. <laughs> I don't want two new dogs. I kind of like the pug that we have, right? And that's why I'm convinced that Job is allegory. Because when we think that, when that's our thought, we miss the beauty of the message, the point, the purpose behind Job. That in God's love for us, no matter the pain, no matter the suffering, no matter the injustice, the story of Job reminds us and promises us a future that is better than the best that this life has to offer. There's a future that's better than that. And so the end of Job forces us to look forward to the resurrection, to see a new life on the horizon where all that suffering that we've gone through, all that pain, that's in the rearview mirror. That's behind us. We've, we've dealt with that. There, that's no more. Trusting God is a decision to let God, let him make the right incision. And when we let God make those incisions, what do we find? We find a new and an eternal life. Because all of that junk that's in here, all that sin, all that stuff that we couldn't let go of, all that pain, all that hurt, all that suffering, man, God went in with, with a surgeon's precision and he cut that stuff out of our lives. And so Job 42.12 says, the Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former part. Church, that's the resurrection story. That's the resurrection story. That's the eternal life part of your story. Job is here, and he's here to relate to all of us, to remind all of us that beyond the pain, beyond the things that we, we don't understand, is a, a new life that is even better than the best of our former life. And that, my dear brothers and sisters, is the book of Job. And so church, wherever you are right now, as we get ready to, to stand and sing in a moment, you might be in pain, I guarantee you have been in pain. I guarantee you will be in pain again at some day in your life. And it's natural for us to want to flee from that and run from that and say, I don't want any part of that. But wisdom takes a step back. Trust God to see the ultimate picture and to make the right incision, even when it's painful to me personally in the moment. If it benefits me in the long term so that we have eternity in mind, that there's a better future in mind, isn't it worth it? In pain, there is gain. And so churches, we, we stand and sing. I don't know where you are, but if, if you are in a place where you're saying, you know what, I'm ready to let you make those incisions. I'm ready to, to let you lead me toward a better life, a resurrected life, a new life. I'm ready to make Jesus the Lord of my life. Then I want to invite you to that. You can talk to me during the song. You can talk to me after service today. If you're watching online, you can email me at questions at lakemercedchurch.com. But as we, we close, I want to invite you to stand where you are. And let's close with a familiar blessing. That may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. God bless you, church. Let's praise him with everything we have.